This is a sermon I really want to make sure that this has the intended effect that the Holy Spirit wants for this body at this time. This is no small deal what we're about to look at in the scriptures today. This is the turning point in the book of Acts. This is the turning point in what the gospel will be to all people. Let's pray together before we jump into this. Dear God, I pray that that we can give our hearts, our minds fully over to your word right now. Oh God, thank you. Thank you for not just capturing your word, but also protecting and refining and unbinding your word so that it can explode into the full expression of love and obedience in our hearts uh, so that we are no longer bound at all by any sort of law or performance, but rather now we are left untethered to love you to the fullest, just as you loved us to the fullest. Thank you, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This past year, over 100,000 people died, as they do every year, in Virginia. And here in Hampton Roads, we saved 89 of them. Amen. Yeah, but we got a whole lot more to do. I mean, what is that, right? I mean, at some point, don't we start to look and say, well, where's the power of the gospel? Like, what is it that we should really be doing? How, how is it that we can do more? How can we be more effective for this message of Christ? This is the good news. What is it that is in any way holding us back from being able to see the gospel unleashed? It certainly was in the first century. Many other times as well, it's, it's been unleashed. What's keeping it? What's keeping it bound? And for me, I, I know that I, I have a, an approach to Christ of discipleship that a lot of times looks more like I'm a disciple of discipleship rather than a disciple of Jesus. That I'm a man moved by commitment more than Christ. And even in probably some of us, you know, we think, well, you know, we should we should be more. We're the Hampton Roads Church. Yes, whoever we are, we're in Christ. Like this is the big deal. This is the gospel message. And as the gospel message was exploding throughout the known world, it busts out of all of Judaism, throughout Judea, into the oddness of Samaria. And now with Paul, the most unlikely of all people, because this is a guy who loves discipline. This is a guy who loves commitment. This is a guy who is good at stringent adherence to do's and don'ts. Nobody's better than he is. And he, of all people, is the guy who's going to say, watch out for that brand of religion. Because that's not going to do a whole lot for you. And even for us here, you know, we pride ourselves in being a committed church. We pride ourselves on being disciplined disciples. We pride ourselves on having a a kind of a great military mindset in our culture that we're excited to obey. And that when we see the orders, we're we're happy to just get after it and to be one who is under the, the, the sovereign lordship of Jesus. 
But if right now as you think, well, here's how our Christianity is really going to be unleashed. Here's how my own personal walk with Christ is going to have the breakthrough. Is that if I can take that system of thought, of discipline and commitment, and it may more stringent adherence, and maybe get a bit better at it. Well, what if you did? What if you had a 5% bump in your Jesus performance? Or what if your quiet times were 5%, which, you know, for a lot of us, you, you take 5% through the whole year, that's, that's actually a big deal. Right? You, you, you see 5% year after year after year, that, that's, that, that would seem like, wow, I'm, I'm really doing a whole lot more. I'm turning more pages in my quiet time. I'm on my knees longer. Man, wouldn't that be amazing? But, but if it all results in is now instead of as 100,000 people miss their chance at Jesus as they head into eternity, that we're able to grab, I don't know, 93 instead of 89. What is that? That's certainly not God's will for his gospel laid in our hands and in our hearts. There's got to be more than just that. And right here, as the gospel has moved through the first missionary journey and has seen unbounded effect, sweeping through and changing worldviews throughout wide swaths of population and geography, and we're only 15 years in at this point. This is the 15-year mark in, in Acts 15. It's easy to remember. And, and at this 15-year mark, everything has changed. And now Gentiles have come in. People with a Greek mindset, not just a Jewish mindset, have had their worldviews absolutely upended. Right. And they're all embracing it, and they're joyful, and they're living in peace, and they're loving it, and singing the hymns of Jesus all the way. How did that happen? What's different then than what's going on now? And I don't mean in general Christianity. I mean here and now. I mean Hampton Roads Church 2018. This is big. Now, at this time, in, in the year 45 or 48 uh, AD, 15 years into the gospel, as Paul's having this amazing effect, there's the greatest threat that I think Satan could have ever imposed on the gospel. He wasn't trying to undermine whether Jesus really rose from the dead. He realized, you know what? The compelling facts are too compelling. Instead, what he decides to do is, how about if I just put a yoke on the gospel that is going to slow them down as they try to schlep along in a Christianity that is meant to entangle and meant to never be able to be unbridled, untethered, unhinged, in a love without bound. Let me make it about performance. Let me make it about being able to be more on top of it. And, and maybe if they view it that way, we'll just take the wheels of progress and see them grind to something near a crawl. One, two percent. Maybe grow like that. Maybe you get even more disciplined. You'll see three, four percent. What is that? We're meant to multiply. It's meant to be explosive. It's meant to look 
the way that the gospel looks in the gospel. Let's read what was going on that could have ground it to this place. Certain men came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. And you bet it did. Because the minute that you start to impose encumbrances, restrictions on the gospel, man, oh man, them's fighting words. And, and for, 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 for these guys, right? For, for Paul and Barnabas, they're like, oh no, gloves are off. Oh, it's on. You want to bring that junk into here? Into my house? Into Jesus' house? Oh no, it's on. And this thing is not going to be resolved until the gospel remains pure and rescued from your junk. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem and see the apostles and elders about this question. That's just a simple throwaway phrase in, in a lot of our minds. But for those of us who, who went through the study of whatever happened to the 12 apostles, what was going on in the rest of the world? Because we're obviously only getting the picture of Peter and Paul right here in the book of Acts. But there are a lot of other apostles that are out there going for it in Armenia, in, uh, in, in um, India, uh, throughout North Africa. They are going for it. They are all off having the same effect that Peter and Paul are having. Same effect. And yet, this is such a big deal that they all leave the mission field. Wow. Think of what a big deal this is. They all leave the mission field and they all come back to Jerusalem to make sure that above all else, the gospel remains the gospel of grace. The church sent them on their way and as they traveled through Phoenicia, Samaria, they told the, how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the believers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees. That's an important idea there, right? So you've got Christians who are Pharisees or came out of the Pharisee sect of Judaism. But what does that mean about them? That means that they were really good at old paradigm righteousness. They were really good at Old Testament obedience. Matter of fact, they were the outliers, the creme de la creme of disciplined obedience for God. Now, when you're really good at something, you have a hard time letting go of that as what earns your acceptance and what gives you street cred. And if that's what gives you street cred, you're going to want to see that in some way incorporated into the gospel of grace. It's very dangerous, and this could have changed everything. But that's why Paul and Barnabas are like, let's bring it. We can't let this happen. So, members of the, of the, uh, of the Christians who are Pharisees stood up, verse 5, and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. In other words, the law that was only meant 
to constrain God's holy people until the time of the appointed Messiah. The law that was only meant through a lot of its ceremonial cultic activity to keep God's people distinct and holy and separate from, from, from the rest of all people. Not to kind of have some sort of a hybrid of their religion. To, to have a religion that was so weirdly different from everything else that people didn't want to eat with you, nor would you with them. That, that kept it safe so that it would be protected until the time of the ultimate deliverance according to God's foreknowledge and plan from before the foundation of the earth. Right? All this was doing was just containing the damage of, of sinfulness until the time that the Messiah could be released. Amen. Right? And so the Pharisee Christians were saying, no, you know this, this thing that was only meant to contain the contamination for, for such a time. No, no, this all better be part of what it is to follow the Messiah as well. That is not what it was ever meant to do. It was only ever meant to help you realize how much you need a Messiah. Amen. How weak and impotent you are to ever hold on to obedience. Even the Pharisees, even the top of the class of obedient, righteous guys, even they, girls and guys, even they could not get it together and get anywhere close to following the law. And, and what was the law? It was God giving an indication of what real holiness, what real righteousness looks like. If you want to know what it is to truly be acceptable in my sight and righteous and holy, well, it is perfect obedience to this. Pharisees in their pride thought, we got this. Matter of fact, we're doing this. Man, check us out. And you know what? If the rest of you can get a little more backbone, maybe you'll do it too. So come on. Let's get it on. And, and this is the culture that they're trying to import. But the council comes together to debate this very thing. Um, move, moving on. The apostles and elders met, verse 6, to consider the question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. God made a clear choice among you that the Gentiles should hear from my lips. Listen to this. The message of the gospel and belief. This is what brings all of humanity into God's plan. Is to hear the message of the gospel and believe. Or to trust it. To trust in that rather than any other system of thought. Trust in that than anything in and of yourselves. Trust in that news rather than any philosophical construct that has ever been invented under heaven. Trust in that. God, who knows the heart, verse 8, showed that he accepted them. How? By giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. It's a big difference, by the way, in the New Testament, is that the Holy Spirit comes to reside in our very hearts, in our very souls, to bring us into intimacy and to also empower us. Amen. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Explosive phrase in this crowd, because for the Jews in the crowd to think that dirty, dirty, dirty Gentiles could somehow be pure, when all they ever thought of them as was pollutants on the face of the earth, 
And that now they're being described, not just described, but affirmed as pure. And, and yet they know that they're still doing stuff against the law. The food that they eat, the thing, they're probably getting tattoos. What in the world? How can they be getting tattoos and still be pure? They're piercing themselves. What's going on here? If, if they could be pure and all of that is going on. It's a question some of you may really want to know about. They weren't purified by their performance. They were purified by their faith. By their trusting in something absolutely new. Now then, why do you try to test God, verse 10, by putting on the necks of the Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? Again, Words that we don't know, right? We're a bunch of suburbanites. Yoke, schmoke, what is that? Uh, you know, it, it is what you put over a, a beast of burden. Whether that be an ox, or oxen, or a moose, or mesen, or a mule, or whatever it might be. That, that you put that over them so that they can trudge along and pull a very burdensome load along with them. And what he's saying is, you're trying to do that to people who've been set free in Jesus. They're ready to run with God's speed, and you're wanting to have them heavy laden with mess that has no place in a real disciple of Jesus. Verse 11, no! It says it that way in the text. No! We believe... It is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved. Amen. Just as they are. That's the gospel. The grace of our Lord Jesus. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. When they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, he said. This is the brother of Jesus, James, who had... Who, who was, by the way, by all accounts, like a really good Jew. Like a really righteous, a really observant Jew who's also a Christian. So of all people, if they're going to say, well, all right, he's really good at righteousness and obedience, maybe we'll, we'll listen to him. And if the Pharisees are going to be won over, it's going to have to be by somebody like James. So James gets up and, and, and kind of with a flourish, he, he then says... As they, as they listened to him. Uh, brother, when, when they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this as it is written. And then he quotes from Amos 9. After this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. That is Israel. Its ruins I will rebuild, I will restore it, that the rest of mankind, that's other than Israel, may seek the Lord. And then, in case you don't know who that means, Amos goes on to say, that is all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things, things known from long ago. So James concludes, it is my judgment, therefore, that we shouldn't make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, 
from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. Strange list. By the way, this list is one that probably was already in effect because it says, for the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest of times. That is, among every Gentile city, right? Because the Jews aren't in, don't own every city. It's the Gentiles who have dominion over those cities. And it is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. It has already been the case that all over the landscape, whether it's in Berea or Thessalonica or, or Antioch or Athens, that in all these places, there are teaching centers of the gospel and they're letting these dirty, dirty Gentiles in. And they're hanging there and they're learning alongside of them. And they must have had some sort of guideline for how it is that you will not cause us to vomit in our mouth with you in our presence, dirty, dirty Gentiles. Uh, and, and here's how. If you could just stop eating blood, ugh, and, and, and animals that have been strangled rather than kind of kosher, butchered, and, and also if you could not kind of engage in this idolatrous sacrifice, that would be good. And all that sexual immorality that you think is somehow worship of God, uh, it's not. So if you can cut those things out, we'll let you hang with us in our synagogues and we'll let you learn alongside of us. And by the way, these principles, interestingly, take time to go study this, are in Leviticus 17 and 18. And they're listed in the same exact order. We're not going to study it now. Maybe Tim will take you through it at midweek. Uh, maybe not. It's his thing. <laughs> but what the, why this? Why those things? This wasn't what the Gentiles had to do to be saved. This isn't what they had to do in addition to believing in Jesus. This was just simply an issue of fellowship. How do we all get along and not step on each other's sensitive toes? And if we could just kind of hold to that, we'll be able to get along and really run forward with the gospel. Uh, verse 22. Then the apostles and elders with the whole church decided to choose some of their own men, send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. Because if Paul and Barnabas came back, they'd be like, yeah, sure, it went down that way. Uh, we're the ones who are disagreeing with you. How about we have some other witnesses? That's what these guys are. The other witnesses to come back to Antioch and rescue the gospel. They chose Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, men who were leaders among the believers. With them, they sent the following letter. And so here's the official word. The apostles and elders, your brothers, to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. Greetings! And now think of everybody that's a Gentile waiting to hear this. And now they're thinking, all right, what's going to go down here? Are we going to hear a resolution like we had hoped? Or are we going to have to line up and get circumcised? So there's a lot on the line as they're listening to this letter. We have heard, again, think if you're in that seat. We have heard that someone out from us without our authorization, and they disturbed you, troubling your minds by what they said. So we all agreed to choose some men and send them to you with our dear brother Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we are sending Judas and Silas to confirm, by word of mouth, what we are writing. It's because it seemed like the sharp dispute was such a big deal, they had to make it firm. And that's what all of this was about. Now, here comes the, the uh, verdict. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. 
And now you're waiting. What are we going to do? You are to abstain from food sacrifice to idols. Okay, I could do that. From blood. Mm, I like my steak rare. Okay. Uh, from meat of strangled animals. It's so much easier to just wring a chicken's neck than to bleed the thing out. But all right. And from sexual immorality. Oh, I thought I could get away with that one. Apparently not. You will do well to avoid these things. Farewell. Yes! It's just the gospel and some of these things. Yes! How amazing is that? So, so the men were sent off, went to Antioch, where they gathered the church together and they delivered that letter to them. The people read it and were glad. Oh, for this encouraging message. Judas and Silas, who themselves were prophets, said much to encourage and strengthen the believers. After spending some time there, they were sent off by the believers with a blessing of peace and to return to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, where they and many others taught and preached the word of the Lord. Can't stop, won't stop. These are gospel men and women. Gospel-infused, grace-motivated men and women who now have the gospel rescued from the chains that would have otherwise drug it to a crawl. The chains that we got to recognize here and now. The chains that are causing your personal growth in Christ to look more like a crawl than running the race. And we got to take a hard look at that. Rescued from performance bondage. This is the big deal of Acts 15. This is the big deal of the gospel of grace rather than the Old Testament constraints to keep people from going off the reservation too far. This is the essence of the good news. This is why when he says the, the, the Gentiles heard from my lips the message of the gospel. That, that they believe as we believe that it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that we are saved. That's verses 6 through 11 right there. This is so critically important. And here's the hard part. These are all words that you would agree to, but words that I guarantee you, you've really not embraced fully. Because it is hard, it is counterintuitive, and it is countercultural. There's nothing in our culture that reinforces a message of grace. If you don't study for your test, I don't care how much you pray to the Lord Jesus that you give me the right multiple choice answer again and again. You're going to fail the thing. That's performance. That's the way the world works. If you don't show up for work, your employer is not going to be, oh, man, I've been so worried for you. Do you need a raise in order to maybe encourage you to come more? You think that would kind of like stoke the fires of ambition and industry within your soul? Maybe I could get it. No, 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 that doesn't happen. In the military, you get advanced in rank through your evals, through your test scores, through your performance. That's the way the world works. And take it all and flip it upside down and maybe you can approximate the way the kingdom of God works and the, what the gospel is trying to get through to us.
But for me, it, it, it has remained performance for too long. And, and it's only been just recently where I've decided I am going to just get after the gospel, the good news, the message of grace. I'm going to let it really kind of get just pushed all the way down into my heart and soul, into my consciousness and subconsciousness. I'm going to, I'm going to let it kind of really marinate, get down where, where it needs to in order for me to finally understand what it is that Jesus came to do. What is that big deal? Jesus didn't come to die on a cross so that I could have greater discipline about having quiet times every morning. I mean, what is that? Jesus came to turn it all upside down. But here's what normally happens. And, you know, sometimes I talk about this as having a, a sleep number, right? A sleep number in my Christianity. Uh, and by, by sleep number, I mean, let's say I'm over at, at ODU and I'm sharing my faith. And we, we have a little Bible talk that's coming up where we're going to have a small group Bible discussion. So I have a sleep number. And here's my sleep number, typically. I go and I share with people and I say, you want, you want to join us? We're having a small group Bible discussion. It's over here. And my sleep number is, all right, if somebody says yes, and I know they're coming, then guess what happens to my evangelism at that moment? It stops. It stops. Why? Because I hit a performance measure. If that remains in my life, I am capped. I am disabled from who I am meant to be as a Christian forever and ever the rest of my walk on earth. If you, if you just simply share until there's some sort of a performance bar that you hit, and that's what stops you, you're never going to know life to the full. Okay, let's say nobody's coming to Bible study. Then you know what happens? Then this is the script in my mind. Not the gospel. This is the script in my mind. Tell me if it sounds familiar. All right. I should probably share with maybe three or four people. Because when we get to the Bible talk, we get to the small group gathering, and, and if we all look around at one another and nobody comes, and, and if somebody asks me, so were you able to share with some people? I want to be able to say, yeah, yeah, I had some pretty good discussions with three or four people. But then I'll say to myself, wait a minute, three or four, I'm a minister. I bet other people would have three or four. I should maybe go for like maybe five or six. Or wait, seven's the perfect number. And it's so biblical. Maybe seven. I don't know. Ah. All right, I'm going to go for eight just to kind of like go over the top of seven, right? I mean, that's just wonderful, amazing, right? Eight. Eight? Eight invitations of how to get to the corner of the web center at ODU, which is all that I'm really doing? Eight little directional signs to the lounge in the web center. That's my Christianity? That's my sleep number? That's my significant walk in Jesus? What is that? And, and if I hit it, and I hit it consistently, I walk around like, I got it going on. But if I don't, and I just kind of chicken out or make some excuse that, well, uh, I, I, need to, I need to check the Yankees score on my phone right now. Or I need to, oh, I know what I need to do. I need to read some scripture right now. 
Because I just need to have, have my heart in a right... You know, all of those things are just escapisms. Yeah. And, and if I don't actually perform like I imagined I would, well then, I feel miserable. And it, it, it's this... I'm in the doghouse. Right? I'm in the doghouse. And, and here's my Christianity. I haven't had a quiet time in a couple of days. My prayer life is like a check in the box at best. I had more than ample opportunity to share my faith with some people. And I failed. Did nothing. And have been insensitive at home. And had a chance to make a couple extra phone calls as a good shepherd. And decided instead to watch Hulu. And when that happens, I'm in the doghouse. And my perception is, well, Jesus may love me, but he probably doesn't like me very much. He may love me because he has to, kind of, but he's not pleased with me. God doesn't look at me and say, this is my son whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. He just thinks, man, how much longer till you repent? When, when can I open my arms to embrace you again because it's not happening right now and if that's the tape that's playing in your mind well then you have become a disciple of discipleship you have been committed to commitment and your walk is performance rather than a walk of love and grace is still an arm's length concept and I beseech you, please, spare no sleep to your eyes until you decide that you're going to flip the switch from performance to true grace, what the gospel was meant to be. Now, on the flip side of things, you're doing all right. You're not in a doghouse. You're in a penthouse. Had your quiet times? Had an insight, as a matter of fact, an insight that you were happy to share with people. Not because it so moved your heart, because you knew they would look at you as a you got it going on. You shared your faith with a bunch of folks. Matter of fact, one of them is here right now. Check me out. God must be very, very, very pleased with me indeed. Yes, I am his son whom he loves, with whom he is well pleased. Why would he not be? Look at my performance. I pray at sunrise for all of you. My name. I am. I got it going on. That's, that's scary. The scary part is that somewhere in there at the penthouse, the, the number that you hit that goes to the penthouse is still your sleep number. Yeah. And whether you're living as though, oh, I'm in debt to God. There's no way he can be pleased with me. Or whether you're living as in, ah, God is in my debt. Certainly now he'll answer my prayers. Now that boy will finally ask me on that date. It's no way to live. No way to live. Vacillating back and forth. I mean, God's debt. Who won't like me? God's in my debt. He's going to be answering some prayers. When our performance is lacking, there's no joy in our Christianity. Our intimacy with one another. And, and how do we know it? We even become deceitful. Start to live in the dark. 
Why? Because it's all about my performance and about what everybody else thinks about my performance? Man, if Satan could just shackle this onto us, watch us all come to a crawling stop at best. And if we make progress forward, it's because we're schlepping, trudging ahead with a yoke with chains as heavy as you could imagine that we are dragging behind us. And Jesus beseeches us, throw off everything, every weight that hinders, everything that entangles, the sin, the performance mentality, all of that mess, to throw that off. But, by, by the way, then you do, you get it going on, only to end up over here. And I do enough to hit my sleep number, and that's all that God's going to get. Because in my mind, based on how you guys do, I establish what would be the appropriate number for me. Six out of seven quiet times, that's probably above average among this group. I'm going to hit that, and I'm going to be pretty good. But that's my sleep number, and that's as far as it's going to go. Reach out to 1.2 people a day. I got that. I'm going to hit that, and I'm going to feel like I'm in pretty good standing. Not because of my heart is being fully expressed in, in a blazing love for Jesus, but because I know that's the bound gospel that Satan has propagated amongst us, and we all bought into it. Now, we more than most places and most churches, um, not suspect to this, but are susceptible to this. You know why? Because we have an awesome military obedience culture. And that where authority says, go, we go, jump how high. But if our gospel is that, well then, we just embraced an old covenant of constraint. And nothing more, and it will always have a sleep number. And your Christianity will always be a back and forth mess of vacillation that results in absolute immaturity in perpetuity. You'll never know what it is to have a bust-out breakthrough maturity in your walk with Christ. And here's the other part. Not only does it promote immaturity, but eventually that yoke will crush you. I don't know when that day will come, and it's based in part by the tenor of your, of your own flesh, of how long that you can kind of sustain it, but at some point, you'll fall under it. And think, maybe I was never made, made out for this. Maybe I'm just not cut out. Maybe I'm not among the chosen. Or maybe you don't know the gospel. And instead, to really know the gospel, the gospel of grace, the gospel, the good news. Now, here's the beauty of the gospel. The gospel, unlike any other religion under the sun in the history of the world, is not a bunch of propositions that you need to embrace and obey in order to get closer to God. It is more about the good news of an actual event. It is trusting in an event. That's not Hinduism. That's not Islam. That's not even Judaism. It is trusting in an event, in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And it is the recognition through that, that why did Jesus have to come? Why was he tortured, butchered so severely? Why? To help us to realize how repulsive our sin is. But then why did he go through it? Because he loves you that much. But if we can recognize that it's not on your performance, but in your trust in that grace, your trust. Let me see if I can encapsulate the gospel here for you. The gospel, in a sense, says this. You are a more wrath-bound, weak, and repulsive maggot swarm of decomposing defilement, so polluted by sin and shame that nothing holy or divine can even look at you 
much less embrace you. You don't see it. Because in your pride, you imagine yourself quite pleasing and quite acceptable. And yet at the same time as all of that, you are actually more honored and dignified, more lovely, loved, embraced and valued. You are more respected, more potent, pleasing and pure, more admired and desired. You are more significant and pivotal to all of creation and more dear and delightful to the creator than you ever dared hope. When you let that sink in, you just begin to understand the gospel. The shackles of pressure and performance have a chance of falling to the ground. You have a chance of running the race that Paul ran, not just with perseverance, but with God's speed and God's delight. You get to rejoice in Jesus every step of the way. You get to play not to lose, you get to play to win. When that sinks in, faith and trust in Jesus' obedience rather than in your own obedience. When that breaks through, my calloused crusting over my heart, a heart that prefers a control that comes from performance rather than an out-of-control surrender that comes from a gospel of grace. I want to say that again. My heart, and I would imagine your heart too, prefers the control that comes from performance rather than surrendering that control to an out-of-control gospel. It's not based on a mastery of principles for better living. The gospel is not based on a synthesis of five steps of more positive thinking. Instead, it's based on good news, actual news, an actual event. It's based on a historical event, really happened. Jesus was really butchered for your self-focused, indulgent, sinful life work. He really was. And he really rose to reverse it all. He really rose to guarantee a reversal of all of creation. He really rose to give you and credit you and clothe you in his track record of honor and dignity and respect. It really happened and it's all based on trust, Amen. on faith, on belief. And he really ascended to give you the spirit to embolden and empower you and to slide some steel into the spine of your soul. He really ascended. Why? So that even today and tomorrow, when you slip into performance mentality again, when you thumb your nose at the gospel by choosing to trust in your own obedience, so that even tomorrow, why did he ascend? To make intercession for you as your personal mediator. As Romans 8, Hebrews 7 both say. Right now, even now, he ascended to make constant intercession for you. As John 1 says, to roll out grace upon grace already given. If Paul, a Pharisee and a Christian, had decided to go down the path of performance, what would have happened in Lystra and Derby? What would have happened after he was stoned and he lay in a puddle of blood? He would have hit his sleep number. He'd be like, well, I think that makes everything even, doesn't it? I stoned Stephen. They stoned me. I think we're good now. I'm going to go home and probably tell everybody of my heroic deeds. That's if he chose a performance gospel. But he didn't. He fought. He was in sharp dispute. He realized if you accept this, we are going to put a cap on Jesus, a cap on Christianity that will allow us to have such marginal 
menial, impotent results that Satan will be glad to watch us run in circles thinking that we're doing something. But instead, he had not a gospel of performance, no sleep numbers. He had a gospel of grace. And when he realized, I'm alive. He's alive. I'm alive. Lost a lot of blood, but I'm alive. What did that do in that moment? Did he think about performance in that moment? Did he think, I think I've done enough for one day. You know what that did? It reminded him that even as he stoned and affirmed the stoning of Stephen to his death, he's like, wow, this is eerily familiar. This is happening to me. But it's not just happening to me. Because when Jesus disrupted my path towards stoning more people in Damascus, he stopped me and he said, why are you persecuting me? Why are you stoning me? Why are you affirming the condemnation of me? And Paul realized not only did Jesus bear all of the guilt and shame of his stoning of other people, but he did it for those people too. Those people need to hear just as he heard, but even more so, as I was being stoned, he was being persecuted with me. It wasn't the church being persecuted. Jesus said, why do you persecute me? Jesus was going through the fire with me. Jesus is still with me. This is astounding. What wouldn't I do? For the man that gave me a new lease on life? For a man that died and rose and ascended and is rooting for me even now? What wouldn't I do? There's no cap to what I would do. I'm not going home self-satisfied that I put in a good day's work for Jesus. There are people that don't get it. And I am exploding right now more than ever before in love and even obedience. And I'm going right back in there again. And I'm going to preach the gospel like I have never preached before. And so he did. But not ever would that have happened. And in our own lives right now, in your high school, if you've got a sleep number of performance, you're going to continue to have 340 people graduate each year. Off they go, away from you. And you'll have reached what? Four of them that ever visited? And you point to the school year, I had four visitors. Sleep number. Check me out. I got kingdom stock. I just went up the dating poll. I'm more desirable. Most eligible bachelor, disciple. Right? All of that performance, performance, performance. And if you head into this school year, you head into this fall where, where people kind of get back to work as you make your way through your neighborhood and if you've got a sleep number performance Christianity, well then let's content ourselves, why don't we, as the Hampton Roads Church, to be a church that has nice little 2-3% breakthrough wonders. Or how about we decide with all that we've got to get the gospel deep, deep, deep down to where it needs to go. Every quiet time, every discipleship time, every devotional, everything that we do, that we finally surrender the control of performance gospel to receive the out-of-control grace gospel. And to realize, wait a minute, the pressure's off. I really am pleasing in God's sight. I have jacked up my week, but you know what? He's making intercession for me right now. That should only remind you and cause a fire within your heart to go from warm to absolute conflagration of excitement for obedience and love. That what happened in the book of Acts was an explosion of obedience. 
When the gospel ends up where it needs to go, it is not just an adherence to a performance measure of obedience. It is an explosion of obedience. What wouldn't I give? What wouldn't I sacrifice? What wouldn't I arrange? What wouldn't I study? What don't I want to know? What wouldn't I pray for? How much more would I love to be intimate? All of that happens when the gospel of grace is your gospel. But I don't have an explosion of obedience in my life. And it's time to deal with that. If you don't have an explosion of obedience, an explosion of righteousness, then you're going off your own steam. And your own steam is only going to get you so far. And then you're going to be able to start to make self-justifications for it along the way. And they might even be religious and fine-sounding scriptural self-justifications. But it won't be the gospel. Let's go, church. Let's take the cap off. Let's be Jesus to Hampton Roads. Let's have unbridled enthusiasm for all it is that we need to do. An explosion of obedience, an explosion of love is only going to happen with this final charge. Get serious about this. Redouble. One with another. Preach the gospel of grace to yourself. And every time you're in a discipleship time, disciple the gospel of grace into one another. Amen. Thank you.